Good morning. For um, thousands of years in church history, there's a tradition that takes place where somebody will say, Jesus Christ is risen, and the response will be, he is risen indeed. Now, if you're a guest uh, and you're not familiar with church and that's very uncomfortable for you, no need to participate. I thought Christians were really weird too until I became one and still think a lot of them are. Um, but I do want to welcome you today with that tradition. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I welcome you to join in this tradition and respond uh, when I say, Jesus Christ is risen. You say, risen Amen. We are glad that you're here this morning to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Uh, this week's been pretty incredible at our church. One of our elders said in our prayer time yesterday, well, we did a prayer walk through the building, and one of them said, this has been the most significant Easter season of my entire life. Uh, and I would resonate with that. We have done a lot to prepare for this morning. Uh, we had a, a concert last Sunday evening. We had a communion meal together, a feast. And I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know what potluck was uh, particularly. And I came to this one, and I thought, this is how heaven is going to be. <laughs> Uh, when the dinner bell rings. Uh, so uh, after that, we had our Good Friday services that really prepared our hearts for Resurrection Sunday morning. And we're glad that you're here today. I came across a quote that said this. It said, darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven just started counting to three. I love that. Uh, if that doesn't get you pumped up, I don't know what will. I'm pretty excited for this morning. I'm going to try to calm myself down with a word of prayer, and we'll jump into the message this morning. Father, you are good. Thank you for the resurrection. My prayer this morning is that those of us that would say we're followers of Jesus and those that might feel so far away from him would feel your presence with us this morning. That we would walk away with a clearer understanding of the implications of the resurrection on our lives. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a picture of John Cologne. He uh, fought in Vietnam. And during the Vietnam War, he tells a story and it was corroborated and actually told on national television just a few years ago of his uh, group, his unit, coming under heavy fire attack. And as the shots rang out, many of the soldiers were killed. He was shot four times. And the way and, and where he was shot, his body became completely paralyzed. And so he was fully aware, think about how terrifying this is, fully aware, cognitively awake, unable to move anything, unable to speak, unable to signify that he was, in fact, okay. On top of that, he began to hear many of his fellow soldiers saying, Cologne is dead, Cologne is dead, we've got to move on. Now, if you know your history, in the Vietnam War, they had a, a, a practice called bagum and tagum. And so when soldiers would die, and a lot, lot of different soldiers would die at once, they would make sure that they were dead, they would tag their toe, put them in a body bag, and oftentimes have to discard the bodies in large amounts. And so terrified, he's tagged and bagged. They tag his toe, they put him in a bag, and he's unable to communicate. All he can do in this moment is look through the tiny holes in the body bag from the zipper and hope beyond anything else that something would happen. And when hope seemed completely lost to the rescue came Lieutenant Curtis Washington. Washington was known to double check everybody no matter what. He wanted to do due diligence. And so he came to all the different, and he would unzip the bags and and do a test to the body to make sure that they were in fact dead. And he comes to John Cologne's body, undoes the bag, and Cologne could see and 
understand what's going on, but not respond. They did a test and found out, in fact, he is alive. Much to the delight of John Cologne, they found out he was, in fact, alive, and he survived the entire episode to be able to tell it later on, and the medics who zipped him in that body bag also survived heart failure. So it was an incredible story of survival. I'm, I'm fascinated by these kind of stories. They're everywhere. Don't Google it. It gets pretty morbid. But did you know this? In England, during the Victorian age, they would actually bury people with a shovel in the coffin. I, I didn't know this. Because all too often, they'd accidentally buried people that weren't dead. Seems to be an issue. And so they would literally, with every single person, they would put a small shovel in the coffin with the body so that if they did happen to make that all too common mistake, you would have a way to dig yourself out of the grave. Now, again, kind of morbid and yet fascinating. And, and yet the Bible speaks to this as well. See, during Bible times, there were many funerals that were a little bit too... Uh, presumptuous. They, they, they just assumed that these people were dead when in fact they were not dead. This is why when you read your Bible, it's extremely important to notice the details. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 11, Jesus is going to go and resurrect his good friend Lazarus. And the Bible is very clear. The Apostle John in his written account is extremely clear to say that Jesus waited for four days. Now, many times you read that and you're like, why did he wait four days? He was busy. Uh, we waited four days because when he would go and raise Lazarus, there was not going to be any question whatsoever that Lazarus was, in fact, dead. He had been buried for a long time, four days before Jesus would resurrect him, call him out of that grave, and he wanted to make sure this is not a near-death experience, this is not a resuscitation, he's not waking him up from a really good long nap. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus was going to raise him from the dead, and there would be no question, this is, in fact, a resurrection. This is why it's also important in your Bible that it tells us that it was on the third day that Jesus arose. After being tortured, beaten, humiliated, killed in the worst way during that, 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 uh, those years, during that century, the worst way you could die, as humiliating as it was, as painful as it was, was the way that Jesus died. After being humiliated in front of his friends, after being told he was going to be flogged, then being flogged, beaten within an inch of his life, but kept alive just long enough to be hung on a ragged cross after a thorn of crowns was pushed down onto his head, creating excruciating pain. After he was punched and kicked and spit at and looked down upon. Just to make sure he was dead, because they didn't want to mess this one up, they shoved a spear into his side and punctured his lung and his heart. And when the people saw the blood and the water flowing out, they knew, medically speaking, at that moment, this man is dead. He is completely dead. Only then did they take him down and bury him in a tomb. And it was only after being in that tomb that the Bible says on the third day, that's when he rose from the dead. You see, the Bible wants to emphasize something to us. Here's my fear. We've heard this before. For many of us, we allow a truth as profound as this one to just kind of wash over us. It's just another Easter Sunday. What's for lunch? And yet this truth changes everything. And the Bible's emphasizing with the times that these bodies are engraved before resurrection. Here's what it's emphasizing, that Jesus didn't just escape death. He conquered death. This was not a near-death experience for Jesus. He was not resuscitated after not quite being dead. He was dead. And then he came back to life. And the Mark, our, the gospel that we've been studying for the last couple months, Mark is very detail-oriented. It's action-packed. I really love how action-packed this gospel account is. My wife and I have different 
opinions of what makes for a good movie. She could watch a long, good, well-written story. I just want action. I want explosions and fun. And if you fit a story in there somewhere along the way, that's fine too, okay? Different. I like the way Mark writes his gospel. It's boom, 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 boom. And yet he drops these, like, these detail bombs on us. He gives us details that are like, oh, man, that's incredible. And it supports the truth that he's trying to communicate. Well, in order to see that, one of the things we often say around here, and we believe wholeheartedly, is that context is king. That I could take a Bible verse, and I could throw it up on the screen and make it say whatever I wanted it to say for you. And we could make this about some sort of a production that you've been watching and some sort of a self-help movement that you can walk out of here and feel really good about yourself, or we can look at truth. And we can look at the context of the passage that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 16, but in order to understand 16, 15 came first. And so to give us a little bit of a foundation to understand what Mark 16 is saying, I want us to go to Mark chapter 15. And at the end of chapter 15, Mark is going to explain some of the details that support his claim in chapter 16. Let's take a look, beginning in verse 42. Here's what Mark writes. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, very close-knit friendships with the Pharisees, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, that's the Roman soldier that would have overseen the death of Jesus, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was in fact dead, completely dead, he granted the corpse, lifeless body, to Joseph. And Joseph brought, or bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. So a cave, a purchased cave, and they created a tomb. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, a very large stone to roll up against this, this tomb. And Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So this is pretty fascinating don't miss the details here. Let's just take a look at a few of them. Joseph of Arimathea. Who is this guy? Well, the Bible tells us that he is someone who's searching for the kingdom of God. So he's somebody who's very curious, somebody who was very well connected with religious leadership, and somebody who decided that Jesus needed a proper burial. Now, here's why that's fascinating. He risked everything to go to Pilate to ask for this body to be given to him. He risked his entire reputation, his close friendships. He risked his future, uh, moving up uh, the, the corporate ladder, if you will. He risked everything. And he goes to Pilate asking a question that would have come off as somewhat absurd because anytime a criminal that was accused the way Jesus was accused was crucified, they never were granted proper burial. They were thrown in a giant heap of bodies and discarded. And so for Joseph of Arimathea to go to Pilate and say, I really want to request this body. For Pilate to grant him permission to have the body is a real clue into who Pilate was, what he'd been wrestling with. See, Pilate wrestled with whether or not Jesus was, he washed his hands of what was going on with Jesus earlier. He said to the crowd, hey, this, I can't find any fault in this guy. And so now to grant the body means he's pretty in tune with the innocence of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Now you have this centurion, this Roman soldier, Understand this, a Roman soldier being summoned to Pilate, the one who was in charge of him, would have been under a lot of stress. Because now he's coming into the room and anything that's asked of him is going to be double-checked. Anything that gives an indication that he's not telling the truth would have cost him his life. So this centurion, this one who oversaw, who witnessed the death of Jesus, comes before Pilate and is asked, is he in fact dead? There is no reason why this man would have lied at all to Pilate 
knowing that his entire life was on the line. If I don't tell him the truth and he finds out that I lied to him, I'm dead. So he tells him the truth. He's dead. We made sure of it. We shoved the spear in his side. We saw the blood and water. There's no way there's any life left in that body. And then you have the witnesses. You see, if Mark was writing a, an account where he wanted it to be historically reliable and believable, you would never make your witnesses women. We live in a different day and age, but back in that day, women, their testimony was not admissible in the court of law. You could not take a woman's testimony as credible. And so for Mark to say, and the women who witnessed this entire thing go down to where they put his body, for him to name them and say, these are the women who did that, there's no reason, if you wanted someone to believe what you were writing, that you would claim that women were the witnesses unless they were, in fact, the witnesses. Once again, you've got religious experts, you've got uh, military experts, and you've got eyewitnesses all saying the same thing. We disagree on everything else, but we all agree on this. There's no life left in the body that was hanging on that cross. He's dead. And now, understanding why Mark wanted us to understand with very, very clear, just clarity of mind, just understand this. Jesus was, in fact, dead, and here's how we know he was dead. He's giving you all the proof you need. He begins chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the day, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and when they... They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us to the entrance of the tomb? We saw that stone get rolled up. There's no way that we can do this. And they're bringing these spices. What's fascinating, though, is that Mark mentions the names of these women in eight lines. He'll mention the name of these women three times. Three different times he's going to say the name of these different women. He'll record it. You got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. One scholar makes a really interesting point. He says this, the reason why that's taking place, the reason why he'll mention the names three different times in his writing is because they're like footnotes in a term paper. It's like citation sources. If you're writing a term paper and you make a claim, but you don't back it up with the source of where you got that claim, you're not going to be validated. And so what he is saying essentially with this, he's saying it three different times, he's saying, hey, they witnessed this. These are the three women that witnessed this. These are the three women that witnessed Three different times. Why would he do that? Well, here's why. Because the only reason he would do that is because these women were alive when Mark wrote his gospel. And if they were alive when he wrote his gospel, he's inviting anyone reading this written account of what took place to say, if you want to make sure that everything I've been telling you is historically accurate, Here's the three women that watched everything take place. Go talk to them. They will corroborate my entire story. They're going to validate everything that took place. And so once again, he's trying to show that these, these events actually took place, and you can check me out to make sure that this isn't fake. And so these women, we see them in these passages. They're bringing these spices, these very expensive spices, to go and give Jesus a proper burial. But if you piece together the gospel accounts, you learn that Nicodemus and Joseph had already begun that process. But you've got to understand, Jesus died mid-afternoon. Mid the Sabbath would have began just a couple hours later when the sun went down. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were on a time crunch to try to get this done. They got as much done as they could. They rolled the stone, knowing that, hey, we're going to come back and finish this process. And so we pick up the story, and these women are on their way to finish this proper burial of Jesus. And here's what happens, verse 4. Looking up. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. It was a very large stone. Mark is really emphasizing that. There's no way they were going to be able to roll this stone back on their own. They arrive early in the morning before anybody would have been there, and the stone has already been moved. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. That's the, thank you, Captain Obvious Mark. Yeah, they were scared. You walk into a tomb, and there's a glowing dude dressed in white sitting there. I'm going to be pretty alarmed myself. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. Come on. Like, really? Like, seriously? Don't be alarmed. Uh, don't be scared. I'm seeing a ghost. You, it was an angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I love that he included Peter specifically. He's saying, go tell the disciples and make sure that Peter hears that he's risen because Peter betrayed him three times and he needs to be restored. You can tell all the disciples, but you better make sure Peter hears that he is in fact risen and that he's going to go before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, please let this sink in. They are going to this grave, this tomb, expecting to see a dead body. And when they get there, they're told he's not dead, he's risen. He rose from the dead. Let those words sink in if you were there with them. These women coming, uh, grieving. One who had just lost her son, who's in the midst of her entire world collapsing. Coming to this grave trying to finish the burial process so she can get a little bit of closure. And when she arrives, she's told he's not even dead. He's risen from the dead. But here's the thing. It completely alarms them. They're completely thrown off by that proclamation. He's, he's risen from the dead. And it doesn't, it, it completely surprises them when it shouldn't. Like it shouldn't surprise them. If you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of Mark, we've been studying through this Gospel. And what we learned a couple weeks ago is that there were three specific times that Jesus told his disciples, it's, it's one of these moments where he said, hey, ignore everything else that's around you. I just want to th- look in my eyes. Do you hear me? I'm going to be killed. And then three days later, I'm coming back to life. Then in chapter 9, right? So chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 30, he comes to him and he says, hey, hey, I'm, I'm going to make sure you heard me. I'm going to die. And then I'm coming back to life. And then just to make sure they heard him, he comes back again in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, and he says, look, I just want to be clear before, this takes, before everything goes down, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm coming back to life. Yeah, okay, Jesus. Yep, got it. Okay, got it. But here's what's fascinating about it. Mark's writing, the way he writes his gospel is very short and to the point, just boom, 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 which means he's very intentional about what he includes in this boom, 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 boom account. So if he quotes something three times, more than likely, Jesus didn't only say it three times. This would have been something Jesus was saying all the time. I'm going to die, and I'm coming back. I'm going to die, and I'm coming back. I'm going to die, and I'm coming back. And yet, when we get to this really interesting moment of the resurrection, there are no disciples to be found. Nobody is there looking for him. Nobody is with expectation waiting for that day to come. You have these women showing up, but they were clearly not expecting a resurrection because they were preparing for a burial. Nobody thought that what he had said over and over and over again was actually going to take place. And you would think if Mark was writing a piece of fiction, some sort of a hoax or a lie that he just wanted everyone to believe, you would think that in that you would probably have one of the disciples come to the rest of the group and say, guys, like I know everybody's sad, but remember what he said? Like he said it a lot. What do we got to lose? Let's just go see. Let's, come on, let's just go. We've got nothing to lose. Let's just go check it out and see, did he in fact resurrect? Because if he didn't, we can keep moping around and being sad. But if he did, then everything's different. You would think if you're writing a historical account, you would include at least one of those disciples going to the rest of the group and saying, hey, let's at least give this some thought. He said three days. It's been three days. Let's go see what would happen. Let's just see. Maybe he came back to life. Here's the point. The resurrection 
was as inconceivable and seemingly impossible for those disciples as it is for many of us today. And yet it happened. Though none of them expected it, when faced with the facts, they understood it was true. Because there was no doubt in their minds he was dead, and now there's no doubt in their minds that he's alive. And when they got their mind around that, everything began to change. Look at how the women respond in verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb. They go running out of the tomb for trembling and astonishment. So they were scared. What does this really mean? They were astonished, like, I can't believe this is actually happening. It seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were scared. They were afraid. What does this mean? Their entire world is changing, just like that. I mean, in one moment, everything was different for them. Everything changed. All of what he said starts flooding in. All of the experience, I think for some of them, just relief that he's not dead and he's actually alive. Others, it's, everything he said is starting to make sense. Remember, he repeated himself over and over. This is what you would call a crisis of faith. This is one of those moments where when faced with truth, you have a decision to make. And either way you make that decision, everything changes for you. This is what they're faced with in this moment. No matter how, what way we decide to go, this is a crisis of faith. This is a pivotal moment in my life. You ever been there? Those decisions when faced with truth where you have to make a choice. This is a picture of Paul Doré. He was a brilliant French artist during the 1800s. The story is told that he was traveling to a, a, another country, and he forgot what would be the equivalent for us, a passport or the paperwork proving his identity. And when he was trying to come back to his homeland, uh, the immigration officer said, hey, we, can't, we don't know who you are. No, you can't, you can't do this. You can't come in here. And he responded to this particular officer by saying, hey, um, like, don't you know who I am? I'm a pretty famous artist. This is, this is who I am. He's like, well, I've seen your work, but I've never seen your face. So I don't know that you are who you say you are. And he said to him, well, how can I prove it to you? Just let me prove it to you some way. And so after thinking about it for a few moments, this officer went and got a piece of paper and a pencil, and he said, I want you to draw Paris with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And in just a few moments, this incredible artist sat down and hand-sketched the most brilliant picture of Paris with the Eiffel Tower in the background that this officer had ever seen in his life. And he responded by saying, there is no doubt in my mind that you are who you say you are. Because there is nobody else that could do what you just did. You see, the resurrection is saying that exact same thing to us this morning. Another Easter Sunday morning where it is telling us this truth and it's communicating this truth to us. That because Jesus resurrected from the dead, after being completely dead, there is no one else like him in all of history. Throughout history, there have been many who claim to be a Messiah. And they even got really big movements behind them until some authority squashed them. And when they were squashed, their movement died with them. But there's something different about this movement. Why? Because when he died, the story wasn't over. Three days later, he came back to life. And a movement started that has changed the very course of human history. It's changed millions and millions of lives. And the implications for this life change are numerous, but they're not surface-level, self-help type movements where you come and you're entertained and you're told a self-help principle to make yourself feel good. It's much deeper than that. This goes into redefining your entire reality. Everything about you changes because of this truth. John Stott describes what actually took place on the cross when he says these words. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. We, we put ourselves in God's place. I am the master of my own destiny. I can decide my own fate. I can make decisions to make myself happy. 
And he says, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. See, Easter Sunday is about God doing for you what you were powerless and completely incapable of doing for yourself. You could not save yourself. And yet Jesus did that for you. He overcame it. And when this truth begins to sink in, it changes everything. I think this is why baptism is such a beautiful thing in the New Testament. I mean, when you study your Bible, you actually open the Bible and study it, you learn that this moment when you surrender your life to Christ, this baptism, you are actually being lowered into a watery grave. And the Bible addresses this as a grave. I mean, Paul would write about this to the church at Colossae in the, in the book of Colossians and to the, the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 6, he would say, you are now buried. Your old life is over. You are dead and you are being raised up. You are a new creation, he would say to the church at Corinth. When you come up out of that water, you are a brand new creation. In that moment, you're restored to the Heavenly Father. In that moment, your sins are forgiven and you're given this gift of the Holy Spirit. The old is past and the new has come. You are, your former life is exactly that. It is now a former life, completely and totally dead. And now you are alive in Christ. And everything begins to change. Now, how it changes, the list could go forever and ever, but I'm going to share just two things with you that have been really challenging me this Easter season. I have been so grateful for the staff and leadership and volunteers that have pulled this week off because my heart has been fully prepared for this morning like it never has been in my life. And two of the things that have been really uh, sitting deep on my heart and in my mind for this whole week as I've been really meditating on what this week means, what this morning means, or this. The first one is this. The resurrection gives us confidence in life. Confidence, not arrogance, confidence. Confidence meaning I live as though I know a truth. I live my life as though there is this truth that I am certain of. I have this confidence about it. Here's the thing. Faith, understanding what the resurrection means in your life, is not a denial that life is going to be hard. I, I get kind of tired of that. Where the church will say, man, everything's good. Everyone's happy all the time. And if you're not happy, you should claim happiness in the name of Jesus. You can't claim a bad day is a bad day. It just is. A bad season's a bad season. You don't have to fake it. Pain is genuine. Pain is real. See, faith, the power that comes in this resurrection truth, is not the denial of a problem. It's looking at that problem head on, beyond that problem, to the only solution, that Jesus conquered death. He conquered death. It reminds us that we're not defined by our mistakes, that shame, as a, as a pastor sitting with people, there are so many Christians that carry shame. So much shame. And the resurrection reminds us our shame was purchased. It reminds us that death was never a part of the plan. And while it is scary, and it does sting, and it hurts, it will never have the last word. Here's a list of a few other reminders that I was meditating on this week, and I hope they bring you some encouragement. The resurrection reminds me that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That my sins don't define who I am, Jesus does. That we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Meaning everything that God has planned for me, he, is, he wants to work in me to make me into a masterpiece. That we are adopted into the family of God. There are no orphans in God's family. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a purpose. Every single day that I wake up, God has called me to be his ambassador. Every day I wake up, I know exactly what the goal of my life is because of Jesus. It reminds us that we all have a former life, and who I am tomorrow doesn't have to be defined by who I was yesterday. It reminds me that I'm not alone. No matter where I am, no matter what I've done, no matter what has been done to me, Jesus promised me that he would be with me every single step of the way. And if he made good on his promise to raise from the dead, he can make good on his promise to be with us every single step of the way. The second thing that the resurrection has been really um, ministering to my heart with is this. The resurrection gives us hope in death. The greatest enemy to hope is death. Death is our greatest enemy. It's God's enemy too. Never a part of his plan. Death is his enemy as well. But here's the thing. Death is a defeated enemy. Defeated by the resurrection. And now because of that, we can be justified. And now we can conquer death. And it will not define us. When we're baptized into Christ, we're forgiven. Romans chapter 5 says that we are justified by the blood of Jesus. And to be justified means that the judge looks at you and says, no penalty for you, no condemnation for you, no hell for you. And as long as we continue to trust in the saving, the saving work of Jesus, our future is secure. This means that no circumstance, no situation, no disease, no pain or tragedy can take that hope from you. But you can live in the confidence of that hope. If I had to summarize Easter Sunday with one word, thought about this for a little while I would choose the word victory because in the resurrection God got victory over every evil every enemy every villain every horrible thing he rewrote the entire course of human history he has victory and he's offered it to us second Timothy chapter 1 says this that God's purpose has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death he didn't just he didn't he killed death death is dead And he brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. Have you ever met somebody? Have you ever been around somebody who had that confidence and that kind of a hope? Very few times in my life have I had moments where I walk away and I think, that was Easter. That was the power of the resurrection, tangibly in the life of a person. Three weeks ago, our elders got to go into the home of a very longtime member of this church, someone who's dedicated her life to serving the people of this church for a very long time, Barb McFarland. Many of you know her, and her health is not good, and uh, her time here with us is down to days, maybe. And so she knows that. Many of us know our time is coming. She just knows it's coming a lot sooner. She knows about when that's going to happen. And so we went into her home, and as is typically the case, you go in expecting to pastor someone, and you walk out having been pastored. And we sat with her, and she had got herself all ready, and she was seated in her, on her couch. And we were talking and laughing and just enjoying being together. They were sharing memories, some that I could remember, some that went way beyond when I got here to New Hope. And that was great, but then she got serious for a few moments. And I'm going to summarize what she said into my own words, but all I could think about was Easter. I've been waiting to tell you guys what she said since she said it. She said, every day I go to bed, I ask God if he'll let me come home because I'm in pain. But every day I wake up here. And I know that I'm here to love and show my family in particular Jesus. 
but I'm ready to go home. I'm ready. All I could think about was Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm going to have to keep living, it's for you. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have never sat in a room where I could tangibly feel the confidence and hope of the resurrection. I walked out of that living room, a living room that's changed a lot of lives. As a matter of fact, one of the elders that was there really got to know his wife in that living room. I walked out of there different, and I got in my car, and I've been thinking for three weeks, I want that kind of confidence, and I want that hope so bad, and I want that for you. I want you to live with the power of the resurrection, to have confidence, to have hope, because it changes everything, man. Go so far beyond a stage and a seat. This changes who you are, the very course of your entire life. Makes you different. Because Jesus walked out of a grave. So will you. Let's pray.